It's been one year since Hurricane Maria swept over the island of Puerto Rico with unprecedented force, destroying homes, buildings, and claiming nearly 3,000 lives. Um, it was like Godzilla came and just pulled everything up from the ground. It is very hard to sit down with your, with your daughter and say, if I am not alive tomorrow, you have to do this and that and that. On this podcast, we talk about how the farm bill shapes our food system. Well, it also shapes how farms recover when a hurricane hits, or a drought, or wildfire, any natural disaster. The farm bill sets aside funds to offset damage to crops and losses from livestock. As the nation recovers from yet another devastating hurricane in the Carolinas, we're looking back to see how federal assistance is helping Puerto Rican farmers recover from Maria. From NET, Nebraska's PBS and NPR stations. I'm Grant Gerlach, and this is On the Table. To get a first-hand view of how relief programs from the Farm Bill work after a disaster, we teamed up with FERN, the Food and Environment Reporting Network, and freelance journalist Allison Keyes, who's reported on everything from the White House to culture to disasters. Okay, uh, well, where should we start? Well, I think we should start where I did, in Yabacoa at the plantain farm of Luis Pinto. Yabacoa is more than an hour from San Juan in the southeastern part of Puerto Rico, and it was littered with flattened plantain crops after Hurricane Maria hit. His farm and the vegetable stand he runs sit along a two-lane thoroughfare. People pull over in cars and they buy things, plantains, bananas, sugarcane juice, stuff like that. And then on the other side of the street, you can see his new plantain trees. They're about seven feet tall, they've got wide leaves. And before the storm, he had 28,000 of them. Then on September 20th, Hurricane Maria hit. He told me through a translator what it was like. It was like a horror film. You felt it like the hurricane was crying. Wow, so he really was hit hard by the storm. Yeah, he really was. I mean, he's 63 years old. He's been a farmer for more than 43 years, and he's been through hurricanes before. I mean, he survived hurricanes Hugo and George, and his crops were devastated then. But he says this time it was really, really rough. I didn't sleep at all that night. And on the next day at 11 a.m., there were still winds. I came out. I didn't lose this uh, small area small store because I tied it a little bit but when I saw the destruction I just cried but I said the show must go on You could actually see the pain in his face. Plus, he says between cattle, roads, fences, and plantains, he lost almost $300,000. $300,000. Well, how did he manage to get back up and running? Well, he says he got 65% of the value of his crops from the U.S. Farm Service. That's part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He had a loan, he had some savings, but he spent them on putting the farm back together. You have to pay for electric generators and the gas to fuel them. And it took him nine months to get his insurance money back. Nine months. And he blames Puerto Rico's ongoing financial crisis for the time it took to get his insurance money from the Puerto Rico Department of Agriculture and says he heard the same from other farmers. 
So when it comes to the response to the hurricane, you have the USDA, which is a federal agency, and Luis Pinto was pretty happy with them, but it was different when it comes to the local officials? I actually heard something similar from the dairy farm I visited. About two hours from Yapacoa is Camoy. It's on the northwest part of the island near Hatillo, where all the dairy farms are. Rafael Lopez is a tall man with a quick smile, and his farm is called El Romanzo. I breed here a brown Swiss Holsteins. He lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in the destruction. That includes several buildings, the feed enclosure area, and 16 heifers. Those are young female cows who haven't yet had a calf. Then he spent 800 a week on fuel for generators for six months and the feed for the cattle. The, the mature cows that I lost was mostly due to the problem that we had with the feeding after the hurricane. That, you know, we didn't have enough food feed to feed the cows, so we had to go through everything. We had to go and buy chicken feed, uh, hogs feed, horse feed, whatever we could grab, get the grab to, in order to feed the cows. Lopez says his farm is making a comeback, and once again he's milking around 225 cows, but other dairy farmers on the island are in real trouble. He says that right now there are about 285 dairy farms, but somewhere around 150 of them are in bankruptcy right now, so the situation for them is really kind of ugly. So, Allison, these farms had a lot to recover from. Absolutely. And the thing is, just like Pinto, Lopez says the USDA did a great job, but he's not so impressed with the way the Puerto Rico Department of Agriculture handled things. We got help from the USDA. From the Department of Agriculture of Puerto Rico, they say apply for this, but nobody got the money. So, Allison, explain this to me. What is the U.S. Department of Agriculture doing that these farmers are finding to be so helpful? And what's the difference with the response from the Puerto Rico Department of Ag? And those are two different agencies. Absolutely. The Puerto Rico Department of Agriculture is Puerto Rico's Department of Agriculture. The USDA as a federal agency. The USDA moved really quickly, the farmers say, to help them. So Wanda Perez is the acting state director of the Farm Service Agency, which is part of the USDA. The Farm Service Agency implemented the Dairy Assistance Program, providing the feed for the old livestock animals. It was very quick. Um, it was a program that was established on October 21st, and we disbursed the, all the money and paid the assistance, providing the assistance to the producers in 30 days. Through USDA and the Farm Service, $2.36 billion was approved for nine states and territories, including Puerto Rico, Texas, California, and Florida. Wanda Perez says in Puerto Rico, they've already obligated $52 million under that program. Farmers have through November 16th to apply, and both the USDA, the Farm Service, and the Puerto Rico Department of Agriculture are all doing a lot of outreach to let them know that. But a lot of people were wondering whether the local government was ready for this, and the Secretary of Agriculture, Carlos Flores, says, well, of course not. No, there is no, no plan in the world to that type of disaster. So Flores, as I said, is secretary of the Puerto Rico Department of Agriculture. He says there was a plan on paper for the 2017 hurricane season, but when Maria hit, he had to throw it in the trash. There are no phones, there's no electricity, there was no mail, there was no transportation, and people weren't expecting the entire island to be affected. So in response to the farmers' complaints about the slow insurance payments, he says that, frankly, they did better than other insurance companies. We were the first one in Puerto Rico. If you ask, Today, how, how is the, the, the balance of other insurance in Puerto Rico? We are the only one that had to pay already uh, 95%. 
Flores says he actually took money from other agencies to lend it to that insurance agency to pay farmers, but it took some time and some effort to figure that out. He says so far there's already $51 million in the hands of farmers, but he says he wants them to know that there's basically no way to pay them immediately like they wanted. Do the people you talk to think that agriculture on the island or that the food system on the island will be different after Maria? Is it inspiring changes there? It is inspiring some changes, and it's also inspiring a lot of thought and conversation. At the Ocano supermarket in the Altamira neighborhood in San Juan, this is a huge supermarket. It's got 50% share of the industry here. And people in that neighborhood prefer local produce to imports. 40% of its produce comes from farmers that are in Puerto Rico. So now this market is going directly to local farmers to buy their products, and they want to do its part to reduce dependence on imports from other places. They're working with some of the larger farms, of course, but they're also working with sustainable farms. Daniela Basosa, who has a beautiful farm in, called uh, Siembra Tres Vida. She's in Ibanito, which is up this terrifying, beautiful mountain trail. But I've got to tell you, if you're not used to driving it, there are these tiny little roads with hairpin turns, and you can look down on all this beautiful agriculture and lands. But they survived the hurricane without almost any help from the federal or local government because there's a whole existing network of nonprofits and communities and like-minded people. And she also said that the thing that destroyed her was that there was such a huge food shortage outside of San Juan. She said it was scary because people in the city were eating in restaurants in some places while there were terrible things going on outside. When the rest of the island was going hungry, you know, and people were dying. And it was really strange to see that. And I think a lot of efforts have gone into resiliency. Like, so how can we avoid being so vulnerable? And I think small sustainable farms in terms of feeding and in terms of food crisis have, a, have you know, the recipe to really kind of figure that out. Well, we've been talking a lot about people losing their farms and their livelihoods, but that's a good reminder that this was a deadly storm. Did that touch any of the farmers that you talked to? Absolutely it did. I've got to take you back to Rafael Lopez's farm because he was among those diagnosed with leptospirosis. That's the bacterial disease that's usually treatable by antibiotics, but people died from it on the island of Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Let, let me play you what he remembers, and it's, it's hard to hear. Um, I was one of the first patients with leptospirosis, and I had to be rushed to the hospital. I didn't know if I was going to make it to the next day. It is very hard to sit down with your, with your daughter and say, you know, if I am not alive tomorrow, you have to do this and that and that. He really had to pause with, with tears in his eyes before telling me that story. And he says, you know, he agrees with a lot of other people that think that the death toll was not accurately reported at first. His thought was that perhaps officials on the island were trying to paint a better picture for the media to try and avoid losing any of the federal help that they were getting by contradicting the president. Because, of course, there's that controversy going now as to whether the death toll from Hurricane Maria was really 3,000. President Trump is continuing to deny the results of the George Washington University study that the island commissioned. And Lopez just thinks the government just didn't want the media to know how bad things really were. They want to show the people that survived from the leptospirosis. But I know that at the same time I was in the hospital, two other guys had the disease. They died, they were younger than me. You go through many emotions, you know. Now that we are 
ready to celebrate the one the one year of Maria. Honestly, I am stressful. <laughs> stressful. It's actually more than stressful for him and the other people I talk to. Everyone on the island is is still terrified, right? When I was there, there was a storm headed toward the island and everybody was going, okay, I need to go buy some generators or okay, I need to go buy some food. Everyone is very scared. And Lopez, like a lot of other people, watches the Weather Channel every day to see what's going to happen next. That story was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, an independent nonprofit news organization. As Puerto Rico continues to rebuild from Hurricane Maria, many more parts of the U.S. are dealing with their own disasters. The Mendocino Complex fire in California, severe drought in Kansas and Missouri, and of course, Hurricane Florence in the southeast. I caught up with Jonathan Coppice, a professor of farm policy at the University of Illinois, to talk about how the Farm Bill is designed to deal with these kinds of disasters. Sort of the front line, if you will, of disaster assistance uh, for farmers comes through the federal crop insurance program. So farmers of particularly the bulk commodities like corn and soybeans and wheat and cotton can buy insurance policies on their crops. And then if there's a loss due to a national, natural disaster like a hurricane, then they can get uh, indemnities for that loss. And then the 2008 Farm Bill uh, created a, a standing suite of supplemental disaster programs uh, so the, out of those, you can get indemnity for lost livestock. You can get indemnities for uh, damage to trees that, that uh, you know, fruit trees that are that are perennial. When you look at the big picture, how well are those resources spread around? Does it tend to skew toward one type of crop over another? Well, the bulk of the of the federal spending uh, is concentrated on a few of these what we call the the covered commodities like corn and cotton and wheat and rice and soybeans. Uh, in recent farm bills, uh, we have improved and increased the assistance that's available for the fruit and vegetable crops. Uh, more of the fruit and vegetable crops can purchase insurance. Uh, and we've expanded um, additional assistance through like the, the, the non-insured program and then the, the uh, standing disaster programs that help with, for example, uh, tree crops. Okay, so one thing that I've sort of learned looking through the background here is that Congress has been trying to make some of these programs permanent. And that's because in the past they were really going storm by storm? For years, uh, particularly going back into the the late 90s, there had been this sort of constant battle in Congress to appropriate what we would call ad hoc disaster. So, you know, a drought would hit in the plains and those members of Congress would have to start pushing a a disaster assistance bill through. Farmers have been hit by some of those disasters would have to wait, you know, sometimes multiple years before Congress could get the bill through. They would have to wait years? In some cases, yeah. In some cases, you'd have an ad hoc bill that looked back two or three years to try to provide some assistance for losses. Those, many of those farmers had the ability to buy insurance, and that was always one of the controversial issues about an ad hoc program. Congress doesn't want uh, to discourage the purchase of insurance and risk management at the farm level in the hopes that, that ad hoc assistance would come out uh, at some point. So it was kind of a, a, an effort, a, a struggle sometimes to get that through Congress. Okay, but now some of these programs are permanent. How is that supposed to work differently or better? 
So this, the, the, a simple one is the livestock indemnity program. So in the past, uh, let's say you lost livestock due to uh, a winter storm. In 2008, we created this program that, that uh, has funding available. So if you lose livestock to a natural disaster, you can go into the Farm Service Agency and apply for an indemnity payment to help cover part of the cost of the livestock that was lost. And those uh, programs are expected to stick around in the next farm bill? Yeah, the, both the House and Senate farm bills that, that are in conference right now uh, continue these standing disaster programs. Uh, they've proven to be um, fairly popular and, and have been helping farmers, uh, certainly on a much more timely basis than what we'd seen through the old ad, ad hoc type system. Congress still, after the 2017 storms, the hurricanes, the wildfires, came back and passed some extra assistance. So why would they need to do that? And are those permanent programs getting the job done? Well, you're, you're right. In the, in the wake of the uh, hurricane season last year, uh, Congress added about $2.4 billion in additional disaster assistance. Some of the argument you get is that while we have a variety of programs, they don't cover all of the losses that a farmer may uh, suffer. And I, I remember some stories, you know, from, from 2017 that talked about crops that have been harvested and lost after the harvest because of the flooding. But it's also, I mean, the sort of political reality is that uh, there's always pressure on, on Congress to, uh, to help out in the wake of those kind of massive storms. And so far, the storms have not let up. Let's check in on where Congress stands with the 2018 Farm Bill. For months, we've been pointing toward a deadline for Congress to pass a new Farm Bill, September 30th. And for months, key lawmakers have been talking about getting the bill done by then. But it's looking less and less likely that that will happen. Negotiations between the House and Senate in conference committee have not led to a compromise. While I had Jonathan Coppice on the line, I asked him about what's holding things back. Yeah, the biggest political issue has been the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or the Old Food Stamps Program. Uh, the House has some, some really controversial changes. There's also some controversy about the conservation assistance the, the Farm Bill provides, and even some of the additional assistance that we're seeing going out to farmers uh, under the traditional programs and in light of USDA's recent announcement of, of nearly $5 billion in, in assistance to help because of the, uh, the tariff dispute. So what happens if Congress fails to pass a new farm bill by September 30th? Some programs keep running pretty much as normal. That includes SNAP, the food stamp program, and the crop insurance program for farmers. Those have automatic funding. But a host of small programs aimed at things like rural development, small businesses, beginning farmers, and local foods would basically come to a halt. There would be no new loans or no new grants given out in those programs. And a strange thing would happen with the commodity programs that pay farmers when prices fall. If Congress goes through the end of the year without passing a farm bill, those programs would revert back to so-called permanent law from the 1930s and 40s and that would mean massive government payouts compared to the current programs. Now, even if Congress runs late on the 2018 Farm Bill, lawmakers can pass an extension of the current law, which would delay many of those complications. Um. 
I'm Grant Gerlach, host of On the Table. We made this episode with producer Marianne Andre and consulting producer Matthew Hodap. Our thanks to Elivan Martinez Mercado, a senior reporter for Centro de Periodismo Investigativo, and Michelle Cantro Vasquez, a reporter from News Is My Business. They helped Allison Keys arrange interviews, get around the island, and translate conversations while she was in Puerto Rico. And thanks again to the Food and Environment Reporting Network and their editor-in-chief, Sam Fromartz. The sound from Hurricane Maria at the beginning of this episode came from iCyclone. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producers are Chad Davis and Dennis Kellogg. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard, be sure to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you found us. On the Table is a production of NET, Nebraska's PBS and NPR stations. Mm -hmm.